Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's blowout victory in Iowa, making it all but certain he will be the Republican nominee, short of an unforeseen circumstance. And now that he appears to be taking the weight loss drug Ozempic, Trump is likely to be a fighting fit candidate to take on Biden. Joining us is a recovering Republican, Jeffrey Caberservice, the Vice President of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. He is a contributor to an analysis at The Guardian. Trump's Iowa win marks a comeback for him and a step backwards for the country. Then, with only 32% of Iowa Republicans unwilling to vote for a candidate who is likely to be in jail in November, we will assess how much the MAGA movement accepts, if not celebrates, Trump's lawlessness, and whether the rule of law itself in America is on trial in this election. Joining us to discuss the mental state of much of the country who fervently back a mentally unstable and criminally inclined narcissist is Dr. Alan Francis, a Professor Emeritus and former Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioural Science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller Saving Normal and the reference work Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. Then finally, we'll go to Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan, which is the site of an Iranian ballistic missile attack on what the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps are claiming is an Israeli espionage center, as well as a drone attack on a U.S. base at the Erbil airport. Joining us is Vladimir Van Wildenberg, a journalist and political analyst specializing in issues concerning Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey, with a particular focus on Kurdish politics. He has covered several major battles against ISIS in northern Syria and Iraqi Kurdistan, among other subjects for outlets such as the Middle East Eye, Daily Beast, The Region, Defence Post, Al Jazeera and Foreign Policy. His latest book, based on first-hand research and interviews conducted on the ground in Iraqi Kurdistan and northern Syria, is The Kurds of Northern Syria, Governance, Diversity and Conflicts. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. 
And joining us now is Jeffrey Cabot-Service, who is the Vice President of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. And he is a contributor to an analysis at The Guardian. Trump's Iowa win marks a comeback for him and a step backwards for the country. Welcome to Background Briefing. Jeffrey Cabasevitz. Hi, Ian. It's good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. And obviously, this blowout win of Trump's in Iowa is a record. The closest uh, in history was Bob Dole, and he was 13 points ahead, and what Trump's three times that. So, how does it strike you, and what does it augur for the road ahead, given how far behind the other two were Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis? Well, I think uh, the Iowa caucus results were just about the best that Trump could have hoped for. Um, Iowa historically was not a state where he performed very well. Uh, You might remember that in the 2016 Iowa caucuses, he came in second to Ted Cruz and was barely ahead of Marco Rubio. Um, This is a state that historically has gone for much more socially conservative and evangelical candidates than Donald Trump. Um, And curiously, although his win was a very large margin, um, it was less than the margin by which he's leading any other candidate nationally in the Republican primaries around the country. So Trump perhaps will do even better than he did in Iowa once he's passed the New Hampshire primary. And uh, I frankly think that New Hampshire might be the end of the road for any other challengers to Trump. Um, If one or the other of Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis had emerged as a real viable alternative to Trump in Iowa, then we'd be having a very different kind of conversation. As it was, they more or less neutralized each other. Um, And almost regardless of how well Nikki Haley does in New Hampshire, I think the game is pretty much over at this point. So that's got to be bad news for the Coke network. They plowed over 30 million into the Iowa caucuses in terms of mostly political ads television, of course, being saturated by so many ads, it's hard to know whether after a while there was a kind of fatigue build up. But nevertheless, my calculus has always been, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Jeff, that at the end of the day, Biden is better off running against Trump than against somebody like a Nikki Haley. What do you think? Well, you could certainly make an argument that Nikki Haley would have been a more formidable candidate than Trump uh, because she lacks all of his enormous negatives, even though she also lacks his ability to inspire his base to a level of fanatical devotion. Um, But, you know, it's a case where Trump's positives may also be negatives in a national contest. We just won't know. Uh, But what was very interesting about the evolution of this race over the past year, if you'll think back to November of 2023, um, and, and actually further than that to November of 2022, you know, Trump had intervened in Republican primaries for congressional offices and even some offices at the state level in ways that were really unprecedented for a defeated former president. Um, and he imposed on these uh, state organizations some people who actually had no chance of winning and were defeated by Democrats in what otherwise would have been solid Republican races. So in many ways, Trump and his whole brand of chaos really do represent a a negative for the Republican Party. Um, On the other hand, 
over the course of this past year, Republican voters seem to have become persuaded that Joe Biden is so enfeebled and, and maybe so uh, senile that any Republican can beat him. And since Trump uh, has really redefined the Republican Party in terms of the populism that the voters really seem to want, uh, I think they decided in Iowa that they were really much happier with the original rather than any kind of knockoff brand of Trumpism, whether it be represented by someone like Ron DeSantis, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, or even in a milder way by Nikki Haley. Well, have we ever had a political race where the challenges to the front runner never criticized him? I mean, don't they deserve to lose? Isn't it almost a foregone conclusion <laughs> that they'd lose if you, don't, if you don't distinguish yourself from the front runner and are so terrified of him that you can't even launch even muted criticism, then you don't deserve to win. Yeah, you know, the term fake election is thrown around a lot, but in some ways, uh, the Iowa caucus really felt more like a coronation than an actual election, precisely because uh, all of Trump's major challengers were going out of their way to say how much they liked him, what a good job he'd done as president, and how much they intended to follow his example. Which raised the obvious question, why would you actually want a knockoff when you can get the real thing? Um, and, you know, I think the reality is that Trump is the only candidate out there who has this really hardcore base who are going to vote for him no matter what, uh, even if he does go down to Fifth Avenue in New York and shoot somebody, as he said in the past. Um, and therefore, if you want to knock Trump off of this uh, heir apparent position, then you really have to be willing to switch the Republican Party. Uh, but none of the candidates other than Trump were actually willing to take that risk. Uh, and so it was almost a foreordained conclusion that they were going to fall embarrassingly short in Iowa and pretty much everywhere else. So what's the future for the Koch network, Americans for Prosperity, given that they pumped over 30 million into helping Nikki Haley come in third in Iowa? Well, I think uh, the Koch network has to wonder if Trump is going to hold a grudge against them. Um, but my guess is that in this case, he won't because he knows that the Kochs are really standing in a lot of ways for big business, which has become very worried about populist tendencies, not just on the left with the rise of AOC and the squad and socialists, um, but also with the right, where both Trump and DeSantis are in a way anti-big business candidates. Um, and I think it could be that their support for Nikki Haley was merely just a way of asserting their relevance and hedging their bets. Um, and, you know, although Trump, uh, I'm sure, is pleased by the margin of his victory over uh, DeSantis uh, and Haley, he's not completely unaware that there are elements within the Republican Party, and within the business community that don't support him. And I think in the end, he would like to actually get as many of their votes as he can, so long as it doesn't require him to make any real compromises to his uh, brand of populism. So I suspect that he'll find a way uh, to reach an accommodation with the Kochs and their interests uh, once he has the nomination. Uh, and it's not impossible to believe that the Kochs, uh, in one way or another, might be supporting him in the election if they decide that that's the better bet for them than supporting the Democrats. But again, I don't think anyone has actually really decided that yet. So, Jeff, is there anything that the Democrats have then left to work with, given that Trump has captured the Republican Party and it's moved it far to the right? It certainly doesn't resemble the party, I guess, that you've belonged to for a long time, right? 
That's right. Uh, well, we've discussed how left and right may or may not be the relevant uh, spectrum of political uh, ideology these days, uh, because Trump, in many ways, was more of a moderate candidate, if you're just talking strictly in terms of conservative ideology, than many other candidates the Republicans had put forward in the past. What Trump is, is a populist. Um, and this really shakes up the whole equation. In this case, the race becomes not so much left versus right, uh, but people who adhere to the basic norms of American democracy and our constitutional order versus candidates like Trump who really want to smash the whole thing. Um, and this makes for strange bedfellows and alliances unlike what we might have seen in the past. And that really, I think, is the Democrats' strongest calling card. Um, if it comes down to this Trump-Biden rematch that no one seems to want, but that we seem fated to get, uh, Biden ultimately is going to be the candidate of stability. Uh, he might, you know, be more to the left than some on the center-right might like, certainly more to the left than um, Americans for prosperity would like. Um, but on the other hand, he's not going to be as far to the left as the Democratic Party's progressive uh, caucuses might uh, like as well. In that sense, what you could see in 2024 is a replay of 2020, where Biden was nobody's favorite preferred candidate, but he was uh, the second choice of enough people that he was able to eke out a victory. Um, if I had to bet right now, I'd say that that's about a 50-50 proposition at this point. But what has Biden got to work with, or the Democrats, in terms of, if you look at 2020, even though he won almost 8 million more votes in the popular vote, he only beat Trump in the Electoral College by something like 44,000 votes in three key swing states, uh, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, and Arizona. And clearly Trump is targeting those states, but is there anything to work with there in terms of, of disaffected Republicans and independents, enough of them to join in with, assuming Biden can get all of the Democrats to vote, which is a big assumption now that he's lost a lot of young Democrats because of uh, the war in Gaza? You know, Biden does not command a lot of enthusiasm from any real faction in the party right now. And that's behind these terrible polls, uh, for his popularity, as well as the polls that seem to show that if the election was tomorrow, he might lose to Trump. Um, but the election is not tomorrow. And I think a lot of people have been enjoying the last few years when they haven't had to think about Donald Trump every day. And as the election draws nearer and this choice becomes inescapable, they'll remember all the things that they didn't like about Trump as president. And they'll actually start to get nervous about what might come along in a Trump presidency part two. Uh, Trump has said, for example, that he intends to withdraw the United States from NATO. What kind of impact would that have on the world? What kind of repercussions would there be here at home uh, from Trump essentially acceding to Vladimir Putin's victory in Ukraine or, in effect, giving a green light to China uh, in its desire to invade Taiwan? Um, also keep in mind that although Joe Biden has not been a flashy uh, leader, he nonetheless has actually had quite a lot of successes in terms of his legislative accomplishments in the first half of his first term, which actually would pretty stack up pretty favorably with, with most presidents throughout history. And many of those uh, victories were also bipartisan, which suggests there's at least some faction of the Republican Party that wants to govern, that fears chaos, that wants stability. I think that for these reasons, Biden is actually a stronger candidate than he might appear because people are not going to vote for him, they're going to vote against Trump. And that's ultimately what I think might work in his favor. 
So, Jeff, again, since you're a recovering Republican, what explains then this cult-like following? Is there any way that any of those people could be peeled off from the MAGA base? Because the paradox is that the more indictments he gets, the more he's on trial, and, and of course he's on trial again today in New York in the defamation case, and he will be all the way through the election in, on trial. His support just increases. And what that indicates to me is that given how lawless he is and how much he's schooled by Roy Cohn to literally weaponize the law against the law, at, this, at some point or other, we have to recognize that a huge constituency in this country, which Trump has, uh, has organized and empowered and motivated, are essentially against the law. Arguably, I don't know whether Biden can make this argument, arguably Biden is running against lawlessness. You know, I don't claim to have the absolute uh, definitive formula for why Trump's supporters uh, support him to the degree that it does seem almost like a cult. The best I can do is to say that there are real economic grievances behind their support for Trump. Uh, many of his supporters are, in fact, from parts of the country that have been left behind, that have not benefited from changes in the economy as we have moved away from an industrial uh, kind of economy. Um, many of them feel looked down upon by the people who have done well out of the meritocracy, um, out of the move toward globalization. Uh, and Trump does speak for them in his enmity toward those elites and in his belief that the system is rigged. And I think that's the reason why every time he gets indicted uh, for his alleged crimes, his support within the Republican Party goes up. Uh, he claims that the system is against him, that the system is rigged against him, and that the same people who are persecuting him, Donald Trump, are also persecuting and oppressing the people who support Donald Trump. So it's a very powerful synthesis and it has appeal to a lot of people. Um, but the point is that this is also a deeply divided society and Trump's base is not big enough to be a majority of the country. Uh, so the question is whether these divisions can be lessened, mitigated in any sense uh, by some of the actions of the Democratic Party, whether the actions of Trump and his supporters are so off-putting to enough of the electorate that they'll uh, reject him as they did in 2020. Well, Jeffrey Kapasevis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Jeffrey Kapasevis, who is the Vice President of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, From Eisenhower to the Tea Party. He's a contributor to an analysis at The Guardian, Trump's Iowa win marks a comeback for him and a step backwards for the country. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how only 32% of Iowa Republicans are unwilling to vote for a candidate who is likely to be in jail in November and we'll assess how much the MAGA movement accepts, if not celebrates, Trump's lawlessness and whether the rule of law itself in America is on trial in this election. Follow the leader of Rock Kimmer Singh. Follow the leader of Rock Kimmer Singh. Follow the leader of Rock Kimmer Singh. Follow the leader of Rock Kimmer Singh.
A verified freestyle, lyrics of fury. My third eye make me shine like jury. You're just a renter, rapping your rhymes a minute made. I'll be here when it fade. I watch it flip like a renegade. I can't wait to break and eliminate on every trade of a snake, so stay awake and follow and follow because the tempo's a trail. The stage is a cage, the mic is a third rail. I'm Rock Kim. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Alan Francis, who is a professor emeritus and the former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Alan Francis. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Francis. And the latest polls out of Iowa that were conducted, uh, exit polls, indicated uh, that about a third of the Republicans would not vote for Trump if he were in jail or in court on trial, but even in jail. So two-thirds say fine, even if he's in jail. We're going to vote for him. And of course, as you know, he got over 50% of the vote in Iowa. So I'm calling you up because of uh, the twilight of American sanity. Does that mean, I don't know what the percentage are of, the, of Americans are that are in MAGA world, but some estimates are as high as 35% or 30%. So is that to say that we have a massive mental health problem in this country? Well, I think that we can say that Trump is crazy like a fox and the people following him aren't necessarily mentally ill, but they're expressing some of the worst aspects of human nature that evolution has geared us to work very much on the basis of fear and anger and also to be tribal animals that we don't think very rationally about, about what's in our best interest. There wasn't enough time at the waterhole when the tiger approached to do a rational analysis of what was the next best step. The, the reactions are inbuilt. They're much quicker. The, the reaction to be afraid or to be angry is much quicker, and in many people much stronger than the ability to reason through what's in one's rational best interest doing a careful risk-benefit analysis. The people voting for Trump in Iowa and throughout the United States are, for the most part, the people most harmed by the policies that he would promote. That The Republican Party, by and large, favors big business and disadvantages everyone else in America. But by stirring up culture war fear and anger and be, by creating a kind of tribalism, uh, Trump has been able to incite a mindless reaction amongst a very large percentage of the Republican voters. And he could conceivably win the election, even though he would be the worst person in the world to be president, literally the worst person in the world to be president of the United States, and also would be the worst president for the people who are voting for him. That the people who are voting for him, except for the cynical business types who, who you know, love the tax cuts he promotes, and the deregulation that he allows, except for them, the people voting for Trump are the ones least likely to benefit from his presidency. So is it something that more than the amygdala, the fight or flight part of the brain? I mean, ironically, or not ironically, really, 
after this victory in Iowa last night, today Trump is in on trial again in New York in a defamation case in the E. Jean Carroll case. So there's the contrast. But the more he's indicted, the more he's on trial, the more the MAGA folk double down in support of him. So they love his defiance. They love his lawlessness. I mean, what's really happening to this country is that the rule of law is really on trial now. Yeah, Trump is maybe one of the stupidest people on earth when it comes to uh, general knowledge. But the, the corollary to that is that he's an absolute genius when it comes to manipulating fear and anger and tribalism amongst his base. He understands his base in a way that I never will. He's uh, all my training in psychiatry. I can't understand people who vote for him, but he understands them. And that's what's most important here. And I think that the um, uh, the wisdom he had at the very beginning of the race, when he said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and I would not lose any voters. He understood the people voting for him in a way that we never could. You and I never could. We keep wondering when he says terrible things like he doesn't think McCain's a hero because he was caught. When he does terrible things, he's a, you know, a rapist, uh, a, a, a crook, a con man, a liar. He's responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths because of his handling of the COVID crisis. He can do no wrong. He can say no wrong for the people who he has incited to this kind of um, mindless attachment fear of, uh, of the world, anger at the people who are unlike them and in uh, the way they perceive the culture wars. And he can get away with anything now, virtually anything, and, and actually find a way to take advantage of it. He can exploit the notion that he's the victim when he's so obviously not a victim. And I think that the way to fight this is not to assume that we can ever convince anyone who adores Trump that he's a con man, a crook, that he's taking advantage of them. I think the people who are going to vote for Trump will vote for Trump, and there's nothing we can do to change them. I think what's disturbing and, and dangerous for American democracy, which is now hanging by a very slender thread, what's, what's disturbing and surprising and unbelievable to me is not Trump. We know what he's like. Not necessarily his followers. We know what's motivating them. What's amazing to me is the difficulty the Democrats have in messaging. They have a very good case to be made for having been wonderful as governors of this country for the last four years. I think this is the best administration in my lifetime. And my first memories in, in, in the world are of, of Truman winning the election in uh, 1948. I've been through a lot of administrations. I think the Biden administration, forget Joe Biden's inability to be impressive in public, doesn't matter. He has around him a very skilled team of people. They've taken us through the COVID epidemic as skillfully as anyone could. They've taken us through the uh, risks of inflation and recession better than anyone could have imagined and better than any economist predicted. This has been a very solid administration at home and abroad. And somehow or other, they project that they're losers and Trump's projecting that he's a winner. The exact opposite of what's actually happened. The Democratic messaging is ridiculous. It's ridiculous on two levels. One, it doesn't provide the rational case well. It doesn't make clear to voters how much rationally they benefited from this administration. And two, it doesn't successfully appear 
appeal to the fear and loathing that most reasonable people should have towards Trump. So I don't think that uh, voters are just swayed by rational argument. I think that the Democrats have to learn better to fight fire with fire. And just as Trump has won his, the uh, adoration of, of this uh, very large percentage of the Republican Party and of the country country's voters, the Democrats have to make clearer than they've made. And Biden recently is tr trying to do this, but it, it can't just be Biden. It has to be his representatives throughout the country, the surrogates in the cabinet, the administrators in um, in situations when they can speak up, they should be speaking up about what they're doing that's helping the country. We also have to inspire more fear and loathing of what will happen to this country with the chaos of another Trump administration. And I think it's it's reasonable. It's not fear-mongering. It's really reasonable to be concerned that another Trump administration will do irrevocable damage, unrecoverable damage to American democracy. It's even conceivable this could be the last election. And I think people have to have, because the, the election won't be decided by changing hearts and minds. I think the hearts and minds are settled. It's really going to be by getting out the vote. And I think whichever party is able to, to conduct a campaign that gets the people who would be sympathetic to them to vote, and it's really just in six swing states. It's not a nationwide election. It's an election in six states. Whoever gets out the vote better in those six states will win this election. And, say, and if the Democrats do it, we'll save the country. If the Republicans win, it may destroy the, our democracy. And I think that the Democrats have to get much better at messaging both the the rational reasons why they deserve to be in office and why uh, the undecided should be voting for them on self-interest, but also fear and loathing, fear of what can happen to American democracy with the chaos and the authoritarianism of Trump and loathing for this person who's really truly loathsome. But at the heart of Trump's appeal and to the MAGA base has to be and clearly is total alienation from American politics as usual. Whether or not you can make the case that the established political establishment has failed people to the extent that they are that alienated. But there's also another aspect, it seems to me, of Trump's appeal, and that is that his voters would love to be like him. They'd love to be rich, they'd love to be lawless, they'd love to be able to stick it to everybody and be outrageous and get away with it. So if that's the case, then as I said earlier, Alan, my fear is that what's really on trial in this election is the rule of law itself, because Trump is really making a case for lawlessness and that he's above the law. And if a third of the country or more think it's okay to be above the law, then the law loses its meaning. Well, I think it already has to a very large degree. The Evidence for that's clear, the fact that each new indictment results in even more support for Trump. The, the fact that the January 6th was essentially an insurrection against America. There's no other way of understanding it. And although several hundred people have been convicted of crimes that day, Trump can brag at, a, a, um, at his rallies that he will release the quotes hostages, not criminals, but hostages. Public officials throughout the country, and I know this from some personal experience where I live, public officials throughout the country are terrified of the death threats, of the um, 
insulting uh, messages that they their families receive of the of the um, intimidation that comes now from um, holding views that are completely mainstream. That the the it's a little bit like Berlin in 1933. Maybe it's a lot like Berlin in 1933, where there's almost a paramilitary um, group of hard right uh, insurrectionist types who are ready to jump on anyone who they perceive as being um, opposed to to their takeover of America. And whether you're running for a school board, a city council whether you're um, on the election commission, you're now a fair target from a very small, violent extremist group who's willing to intimidate you in order to get their way. And again, American democracy could not be more fragile that the supporters of Trump are uh, many, numerous in the military, and police forces and border guards, that the um, country could easily, with the experience of, of other countries over history has been that takeovers, fascist takeovers happen very, very quickly. And the, the resistance to the fascist takeover has to be very strong or else it'll happen. And the default position now, we're sliding into that situation that unless this election is won, and I would hope even won decisively, I think that it's very dangerous that, that Trump will bring into office people with a radical agenda that will completely politicize every branch of government. He did this to some extent in 2016. They're much more prepared to do this in 2024. He could lose this election by 10 million votes. He lost the last election by 7.5 million votes. He could lose this election by 10 million votes and still claim, claim a mandate because he's won by a few thousand votes in, in these swing states, a mandate to radically change the whole image of America forever. So nothing could be more at risk than American democracy. I think the rule of law has already been uh, remarkably compromised. Who would have dreamed it would have gotten to this point? It's been remarkably compromised now, and it's a very slippery slope uh, downhill. But given the slim victory uh, in 2016 in those key swing states, and Biden only won in 2020 by about 44,000 votes in in two or three of the swing states, Pennsylvania and Arizona and Michigan. That would indicate to me, and by the way, the analysis on those votes were that there were largely disaffected Republicans and independents. So shouldn't the Democrats target disaffected Republicans and independents as well as arouse their own base, which is kind of despondent, at least the young people are, about the war in Gaza? So Biden's got a couple of challenges. One, to bring his own people home, but two, to appeal to moderate and traditional Republicans that can't stand Trump, but at the same time find it hard to vote for a Democrat along with independents. So do you see that as a necessity and what evidence are there that that's what, uh, uh, being targeted? Yes, of course. I think you know the abortion issue is the strongest. Uh, with, with um, female Republican voters, particularly, most likely they will be moved by that issue. Uh, Trump's behavior towards women has been so despicable and remains so despicable. And I think that that will, will help with um, un undecideds and with uh, Republicans against Trump. I think that the um, 
Republicans against Trump have been much more effective at messaging. They're much better at because they had practiced when they were Republicans for the Republican Party, that the Lincoln Group and other groups, that, uh, people who had previously worked for Republican candidates have been much better mes at messaging against Trump than have the Democrats, and they should be very much in, in, in the picture. I, I think that the um, Benjamin Netanyahu is handing this election over to Trump by his behavior, and, and Biden is in an impossible position in um, whatever he does with Israel will alienate a major portion of the Democratic Party. And uh, the uh, it's kind of disgraceful how Netanyahu has worked with, uh, he, he himself being a right-wing fanatic, has worked with right-wing fanatics in America for the last uh, 15 years, and now he's exploiting his position not only to keep his office and um, himself and not go to jail, but to help Trump, who should be in jail, to keep his office. I think that we, we, we really need an all-out effort. This is not going to be um, you know, one targeted group, and if we get them on our side, everything will be fine, unless every group in the Democrats' existing coalition and every group in the Republicans' prior coalition that realizes how crazy it is to put the keys to the kingdom in Trump's hands Every group has to be courted. Uh, some groups have to be won over with reason. Some groups have to be won over with fear and loathing for Trump. But this is really um, a time when every good man has to come to the aid of his country. And if we don't do that, we can only feel the regret afterwards of having failed our children, and our grandchildren, because this country will not be livable for many people who now enjoy its freedoms. So just in closing then, Dr. Francis, back to psychiatry. If you were to treat the patient, that is the MAGA people, the 35% or whatever. Now you were saying earlier that there's no point in trying to change their mind. They're locked into Trump and no amount of reason and rationality will sway them. But if you see them as patients, is there any treatment that you could uh, offer up here as a psychiatrist? For this yeah, it's really, madness. It's really, it's really easy. Um, if he loses, if Trump's a loser, he'll lose his hold on the cult. There'll be some diehards, you know, like the lost cause of Trump. There'll be some diehards that no matter what happens will swear by him for the rest of their lives. But most cults end when the leader disappears. And there was not a big Hitler cult in Germany when Germany lost the war. There was not a big Mussolini cult in Italy there will not be a major Trump cult. There'll be some true believers forever. But by and large, he has to lose. He's been able to successfully hold on to his group because he, even if he loses, even when he lost by 7.5 million votes, he declared himself winner, and people, the sheep went along with him. If he loses, I think that the uh, cult personality kind of worship will disappear very quickly. I think people will be pure to the Trump cult once Trump is clearly and decisively a loser. Well, Dr. Francis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks again, Ian. Always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Alan Francis, who's a professor emeritus and former chair of psychiatry and behavioral science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference works, Essentials of Psychiatric Di Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. 
we're going to take a brief station break and be back and go to Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan, which is the site of an Iranian ballistic missile attack on what the Revolutionary Guard Corps is claiming is an Israeli espionage center, as well as a drone attack on a U.S. base at Erbil Airport. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan is Vladimir Van Wildenberg, a journalist and political analyst specializing in issues concerning Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey, with a particular focus on Kurdish politics. He has covered several major battles against ISIS in northern Syria and Iraqi Kurdistan, among other subjects for outlets such as the Middle East Eye, Daily Beast, The Region, Defence Post, Al Jazeera and Foreign Policy. And his latest book, based on first-hand research and interviews conducted on the ground in Iraqi Kurdistan and northern Syria, is The Kurds of Northern Syria, Governance, Diversity and Conflicts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Vladimir Van Wildenberg. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're in Erbil, which was the target of Iranian ballistic missiles and what they call... Israeli Mossad espionage headquarters. What actually was struck? It's quite, it apparently was fairly near a U.S. consulate that's under construction. Well, actually, uh, the the missiles, there were also drones, but also missiles. The missiles actually hit the, the house of a Kurdish civilian, a businessman, and he and his daughter were killed. Also, a Philippine um, a worker is still missing. And also two other civilians were killed. So actually, no military target was uh, was targeted. It was uh, it was the civilian side. And the owner he has a company, a security company called Falcon Group, and he's also the creation uh, behind the creation of uh, Empire World, which is like um, sort of like this uh, apartment villa complex in the middle of Erbil near the airport. Um, and apart from that, there was also in the morning uh, a drone attack on the Erbil airport and three drones were shot down. So it was like an attack with uh, both drones and missiles um, and several targets uh, were, were basically targeted. So it was not just uh, this, this, uh, this house. So Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps are claiming that they struck this Mossad espionage center they also claim that they struck Islamic State targets in Syria in retaliation for the bombing at the memorial, the fourth anniversary memorial of Soleimani, who was killed in Iraq. It sounds like their claims are completely fictitious then. Is that your reading on it? Well, uh, I mean, I, I don't know much about the ballistic missile attack in, in uh, Syria. Also, I heard that today Iran also said they uh, carried out an uh, attack on a group in uh, Pakistan. But at least for Erbil, I mean, there's not much proof that there's any Mossad center. And also, this is not the first time that Iran uh, carries out a missile attack uh, on Erbil. Uh, because also a few years ago, I thought it was uh, 2022, they also attacked the home of a Kurdish businessman. 
And then also they said it was a Mossad center and I visited that house and it was like, there were also, I mean, there was like kindergarten and like, uh, it was like a civilian home. It was like a villa and the same, the same happened today. Also villa was targeted. So, but it's very easy for Iran and, and uh, their supporters to, to believe this Iranian story that they targeted a Zionist center because The Kurds are often seen in the region as being pro-Western and, and uh, pro-Israeli. Uh, but you must also not forget that even Iran, they have a consulate here in Erbil. Uh, I mean, just uh, not a very long time ago, actually, Kurdish officials, they visited the Iranian consulate to uh, to pay their condolences to the victims of the attack in Iran. So if they are so anti-Iranian, why they would uh, do that? Why they would visit the Iranian consulate and... Uh, Pay their respect to the victims of the attack and all the senior Kurdish leadership uh, condemned this uh, ISIS attack in Iran. So um, I don't know, the Kurds are sort of being caught up in this conflict. Uh, and I think that's why, because Iran wants to push out the US from, uh, from, Iran, uh, from Iraq and Syria. And uh, that's why they're pushing more with proxy attacks on US bases, over 100 attacks on US bases in Iraq and Syria since October. So They're really trying to put the pressure on uh, on the U.S. presence here, but also the pressure on U.S. allies such as the Kurds that played a big role in fighting ISIS. And the attacks on the airport in Erbil, the international airport, apparently the U.S. has a military base near the international airport, and three of these bomb-laden drones were shot down. They were clearly targeting the U.S. base there, were they not? Yeah, there. so it's just next to the civilian airport, there's a military base. It's not only the Americans are there, there are also uh, Dutch, Germans, and other countries there that are part of the coalition against ISIS. So it's a multi-nation base. Uh, but it's not the first drone attack. So there have been several of these drone attacks on the Erbil airport since, the, since October, since the conflict in Gaza. Uh, and also there's another military base in Harir, which is uh, further from Erbil, uh, the north of Erbil, where also, uh, which is now empty, actually, they emptied this base, but there used to be also uh, U.S. military there. Um, so these attacks, they have been going on since October, and there have been dozens of attacks uh, in the Kurdistan region. And often these uh, drones, they are shot down. Um, and also there were also reports uh, of drones uh, trying to attack uh, Pirimam, which is like... Um, the headquarters of one of the main Kurdish parties, the KDP. Uh, there were a lot of also unconfirmed reports that there was a drone attack there in uh, Pirman. Um, so this attack, I think it was mostly a message to Kurdistan because it, the, the attack was not only focused on the U.S. base in, uh, near the Erbil airport. I mean, the, the home of this businessman was targeted and also there were other locations that were targeted because last night even there was like, um, there's a camp close to the place actually I'm living with Iranian Kurdish refugees. And yesterday also there was a big sound of a blast and there were also reports that a suicide drone also targeted the Iranian Kurdish opposition parties in this refugee camp. So there were a lot of things going on at the same time and that's why it's, uh, it's a bit confusing sometimes. And what's been the response from the Kurdish Prime Minister Bazani? Is a part of that Bazani clan. I mean, essentially there's two clans, aren't there? The Talibani and the Bazani clans that seem to have been uh, ruling uh, Iraqi Kurdistan for some time. Yeah, the the main Kurdish parties are the PUK, which is led by Bafo Talabani, 
And then you have the KDP, uh, which is headed by Masoud Barzani. So you had the Prime Minister Masoud Barzani in a statement late night. He was just visiting Davos, actually. He just uh, was preparing for meetings in Davos. He condemned the attack, but he also called on Iraqi government to do something about these attacks, which have been going on since October. And also he called on the international community to not stay silent. Uh, but you also saw the U.S. response. The U.S. quickly condemned the Erbil attack. But in the end, like uh, they didn't stop this uh, ballistic missile attack or they didn't do anything to prevent this uh, attack uh, on Erbil because they only respond when uh, U.S. soldiers are being threatened by these attacks by Iranian proxies. And what's been the response from, uh, I believe, the Iraqi foreign minister uh, or the ministry uh, on Tuesday uh, have lodged complaints with the United Nations Security Council. So... Is that the extent of it, a protest, or is this, what leverage does the Iraqi government have against Iran? Well, I think um, the Iraqi government, they have a quite good relation actually with Iran because there's uh, Iraqi parties that form the government, the current government, they have good relations with Iran. Uh, and actually, for instance, when the US, they hit back against an Iranian uh, group uh, in Baghdad, immediately Baghdad condemned it. and. The Iraqi prime minister said US, uh, there should be a plan for US troops to leave Iraq. Um, so I'm not sure if this is going to be in much, uh, there's much going to happen and that the relation will worsen between Iraq and Iran. And also you saw that in the past when Turkey uh, killed accidentally civilians in uh, in Zaho, that there was a lot of like Iraqi condemnation of the Turkish strikes. But then after some time it was forgotten again and then the Turkish strikes continued. And I think it's the same with Iran, because Iran has been carrying out attacks uh, since 2018 on the Kurdistan region, either through Iraqi proxies or directly, like uh, in 2018, in 2022, and now uh, recently with the ballistic missile attack. So, and so far, the Iraq have only condemned these attacks. They have made statements, but not something, uh, something concrete to, to stop these attacks. Uh, and they moved, sometimes they also moved some more border guards uh, to the uh, Iranian border. And they said that Iranian Kurdish opposition groups should leave the border. So they left, but the attacks are still ongoing. So it's unlikely that this will stop unless there is a new ceasefire in Gaza. Because when there was a ceasefire in Gaza these few days uh, in the past, uh, the attacks temporarily stopped. Um, but there have been also attacks before the Gaza conflict so it's not completely related to that because it's mainly about the Iranian goal to push the US out of Syria and Iraq. And in terms of Israel's position there in Iraqi Kurdistan it would be almost surprising if Israel didn't have some intelligence assets there wouldn't you say? Well I mean I mean that's difficult to say I mean uh, there were some uh, relations uh, between the Kurds and, and Israel historically in the 1960s uh, during the time of the Shah uh, uh, but but at the same time I mean the Iraqi Kurds they have very good relations with Iran for instance the Kurdish president went to the inauguration of the Iranian president uh, and also there's the Iranian consulate in, in Erbil. So, for instance, when the ISIS attack happened in Iran, like uh, Kurdish officials went to the Iranian consulate to pay their condolences. But it's possible that, that Israel operates in the region. I mean, they operate in Turkey, probably in Azerbaijan and in, in, in other countries around Iran. So, I mean, they operate all of the region. 
but that doesn't mean that uh, Iraqi Kurds uh, support this kind of uh, issues because they don't want to be part of this conflict between uh, the Palestinians and Israel. They want to stay neutral because they think they have nothing to do with this conflict. And that was also the message that uh, Prime Minister Masoud Barzani said that the Kurds are not part of this conflict and do not want to be actually a problem for their neighbors. So if Iran is, it has the axis of, of resistance, of course, with the Houthis and Hezbollah and lots of military intelligence and IRGC assets inside Syria itself, having really helped rescue the Assad government from the insurrection against it. How calibrated do you think these attacks are? In other words, the general concern is that the U.S. response, for example, to these Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea could lead to a wider war, as does Israel's targeting uh, Hezbollah leaders in Lebanon. It's also something that people worry about that could trigger a wider war. Since you're there in Iraqi Kurdistan, in Erbil, which is the site of these attacks that we're talking about that just took place, is there a sense that Iran is carefully calibrating these responses? Or is it possible that the Revolutionary Guard Corps are out on their own, you know, basically off the reservation, as they say? What's your sense of how much command and control there is on the Iranian side? I mean, I mean, uh, officially, the leader of uh, Hezbollah said that uh, they are act independently from Iran, but I personally don't believe that. I believe there are like are strong instructions uh, by Iran to proxies like uh, Hezbollah and the Houthis and uh, Iraqi factions uh, that call themselves the Islamic Resistance, uh, or known in Arabic as Hashishabi. I mean, Hamas is something different because Hamas is a group that independently operates. You should also not forget that groups that were affiliated to the Muslim Brotherhood and that were close to Hamas, they actually fought against Assad during the civil, Syrian civil war. But now, after the Gaza conflict uh, and also Hamas and, and Assad, sort of, they repaired their relations. So, I mean, the conflict also changes, like enemies can turn into friends and opposite uh, and in the opposite way. But I think there is like a strong Iranian uh, instructions. And also, I think so far, Iran is not also, they don't want to have a direct conflict. That's why they're using proxies. And also they respond. So they're not escalating. I mean, they're not like, for instance, now like uh, Hezbollah is not sending in fighters inside uh, Israel. I mean, they're shelling. There's like uh, air attacks with missiles and this kind of stuff. But they're not like sending in forces inside Palestine to fight against the Israelis. So the Iranians also, they don't want like a real direct conflict. But for instance, if for instance, now you saw that um, a top commander of the IRGC was killed in Aleppo by an Israeli strike. And then you see that the Iranians, they step up the attacks on the Americans because they see that according to the Iranian view, America and Israel, they are just uh, one, uh, one uh, faction for them uh, because America is supporting uh, the Israeli army in, in Gaza. So Iran is, um, from their perspective, they can target U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. But so far, they haven't targeted, for instance, U.S. forces in uh, Arab countries. So they are more careful uh, with this, for instance. I mean, you have U.S. bases in Kuwait, in Jordan, in Qatar and other countries, but they haven't attacked those bases. So it's most, mainly in, in Iraq and Syria because the governments are seen as weak and um, the situation is like that. But you see, there is actually a risk 
uh, that the war will escalate. And also many Kurdish civilians here, they are afraid of that, that Kurdistan as an independent region here in Iraq, that they will become part of this conflict, although they don't want to be part of this conflict because all these attacks are increasing. And then uh, if a U.S. soldier gets killed, then U.S. will respond to these groups and then the groups will respond again to the U.S. So it become like bigger and bigger. And that you see also if Israel hits the Iranians or Hezbollah in Lebanon, or now you see also the escalation in the Red Sea, it can become slowly and slowly bigger if this conflict doesn't stop and if there's not a ceasefire. And Israel does, doesn't want to have a ceasefire. Um, so it's most likely that this conflict will escalate. And actually, the U.S. wanted to pull out from the Middle East, but now you see they are being pulled back in, just like in 2014 when you had ISIS uh, attacking Iraq and Syria. So just in closing then, Vladimir, is there uh, any movement on the part of the Kurds to have the U.S. leave that base at Erbil Airport along with the other coalition partners? Well, I mean, until now, the Kurds are very uh, in favor of keeping U.S. troops and coalition troops in the Kurdistan region because they say ISIS is still not completely defeated and it helps with stability. I mean, they haven't reached the point yet that they are getting tired of the Iranian attacks and say, OK, maybe it's better for the U.S. to leave. I mean, they see the U.S. as a balance against other actors in the region that are against Kurdish autonomy. So they see the U.S. Uh, creating a balance against Iran and Turkey and other actors that sometimes uh, create obstacles for uh, the Kurdish autonomous project in Iraq. So the Kurds are very much in favor of, of, uh, of uh, Western troops uh, in Iraq. And I think this is also one of the main reasons that they are being targeted by Iran. Well, Vladimir van Wildenberg, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Vladimir Van Wildenberg, who's a journalist and political analyst specializing in issues concerning Iraq, Iran, Syria and Turkey, with a particular focus on Kurdish politics. He has covered several major battles against ISIS in northern Syria and Iraqi Kurdistan, among other subjects for outlets such as the Middle East Eye, the Daily Beast, the Region, Defense Post, Al Jazeera and Foreign Policy. And his latest book, based on first-hand research and interviews conducted on the ground in Iraqi Kurdistan and northern Syria, is The Kurds of Northern Syria, Governance, Diversity and Conflicts. And he joined us from Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The